0: Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 235, Fort Wilson. Philadelphia in 1779 was feeling the ravages of war. A year after the British occupation had ended, Locals were still struggling to clean up the city. The economy was still in a state of collapse. Militia were sick of being called out continually for one action after another. Goods were scarce, and the poor were starving. I've covered some of the divisions in Philadelphia between the radical patriots who pushed through the new constitution in 1776 and the more moderate patriots who were reluctant to declare independence. See episode 97, over the next 3 years, the divisions continued to keep Philadelphia in separate camps. Following the British occupation of Philadelphia in 1777 and 78, the radicals pushed for more punishment against collaborators who had worked with the British during the occupation. To the radicals, these people were either loyalists or simply greedy enough to throw the patriot cause under the bus if it served their personal interests. After getting over the initial phase of wanting to hang all of these people, the radicals turned to the idea that many of these rich people needed to fork over their wealth in order to support the war effort. Traditionally, Quakers had controlled Pennsylvania. The Patriots, however, had pushed out this group due to their loyalist nature and refusal to support the war. Even so, many Patriot leaders, men like James Wilson or Robert Morris, both reluctant signers of the Declaration of Independence, did not want the state to dissolve into what they saw as chaos and anarchy as power in the state transitioned. These wealthier and more conservative patriots formed the Republican Society in January of 1779. Their goal was to support the cause of independence, but at the same time maintain the familiar economic, class, and social structure that allowed elite families to run the state. The Republican Society opposed the Constitution of 1776 that had allowed pretty much any adult male to vote, regardless of property, and which had given more political power to the less populated counties on the Pennsylvania frontier, meaning less power for in and around Philadelphia. The result of the 1776 Constitution was a massive power shift, turning over political power to the radicals, who were quick to confiscate or tax the property of the wealthy, and who seemed to suspect the loyalty of all men of property. The Republican Society tried to serve as a check on this growing radicalism. It opposed the Constitution and wanted certain reforms to protect property rights and to reduce the influence of the radicals. In April, a few months after the creation of the Republican Society, the radicals formed their own Constitutional Society. Their goal was to protect the radical Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 and make sure that the poorer working people continued to play a dominant role in the politics of the state. The society elected Charles Wilson Peel as its chairman. President Joseph Reed was also a constitutionalist, as were many members of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania. The constitutionalists viewed the Republicans as counter-revolutionaries. Even if these Republicans were not loyalists, and many of the radicals probably suspected that they secretly were, they were trying to subvert the democratic gains of the 1776 Constitution and put all real political power back into the hands of a few elite families. The constitutionalists were firmly in control of state government at this point. They dominated the legislature and the executive council, but if they wished to remain in power, they would need to keep the voting public happy. And the voting public was not particularly happy. Since the British had evacuated Philadelphia in the spring of 1778, the city had been left a mess. Buildings and streets had to be repaired and cleaned. There were shortages of everything. Food and firewood were notably in short supply. On top of that was the high inflation caused by the proliferation of continental dollars and the legal requirement that everyone had to accept that paper money. Prices soared everywhere in 1779, of course hurting poor workers with the inability to feed their families when wages did not keep up with inflation. Many of the poor in Philadelphia had been part of the patriot militia who had fought in the Philadelphia campaign and who had been forced to survive outside the city during the British occupation. Their military responsibilities had made their economic situations even worse. Upon returning to work in the city after the British evacuation, inflation was preventing them from being able to feed their families. These men tended to place the blame for their situation on the merchants. Wealthy merchants, many of whom had worked with the British during the occupation, still had food and supplies, but were unwilling to sell it at a reasonable price. The radicals, as part of their attempts to organize, held a town meeting in May of 1779, calling for more affordable food and supplies. The militia then took it upon themselves to form a mob and arrest merchants who refused to sell necessities at a fair price. A broadside posted around town captured the feeling of many. Quote, For our country's good, the depreciation of our money and the high prices which everything is got to is one and the same thing. We ask not who introduced this evil, how it arose, or who encouraged it. In the midst of money we are in poverty and exposed to want in a land of plenty. You that have money and you that have none, down with your prices or down with yourselves. For by the living and eternal God... We will bring every article down to what it was last Christmas, or we will down the with those who opposed. We have turned out against the enemy, and we will not be eaten up by monopolizers and for Signed, Come on Coolly. On their own, militia members began arresting merchants and throwing them in jail for price gouging. At the town meeting on May 25th, the people passed resolutions in condemnation of Toryism and monopolizing. They called for the formation of committees to look into cargo imports and ensure that the contents were sold at a reasonable price. They also formed a committee to set prices at a reasonable level. The militia continued their enforcement of these price restrictions, throwing more merchants in jail the following week for refusal to sell goods at reasonable prices. Many of the men jailed were also suspected Tories. A few had been tried and acquitted for collaboration during the occupation. The militia nevertheless thought they were guilty and arrested them again. This movement had been a popular uprising, not led by the radical government. However, the radical Supreme Executive Council quickly took up the cause. It asked for a list of those people who were jailed so that justice could be done to them. They needed to retake control of the situation or risk being pushed aside by the mob themselves. Many of those arrested were tried, but most were acquitted, to the frustration of many radicals. The Executive Council's action did have its intended short-term effect of curtailing more street arrests by the militia. The Price-Fixing Committee got to work setting prices for goods and inspecting imports as well as warehouses and homes to prevent hoarding. The committee also expanded its own jurisdiction into controlling housing rents. The committees were not really a part of the government. It was an extra-legal committee formed at a town meeting, so its ability to enforce its decrees was, at best, questionable. The committees held public meetings, listening to complaints. They didn't take direct action against the accused, but simply publicized their action and left it to them Quote, to make peace with the public, end quote. Merchants realized that failure to keep the public happy could lead to further violence. For the merchants subject to these restrictions, the response was predictable. Many tried to smuggle their goods out of the city and sell them at market value in other jurisdictions. Others tried to hide what they had. They stopped importing more items that they would have to sell at a loss. Some attempted to get around price-fixing by selling the goods at the required price, but then charging an exorbitant price for the barrel that it came in to make up the difference. The committee tried to bring these resistance efforts to light. It also began requiring permits for the export of goods out of the city in order to prevent merchants from trying to get a better price elsewhere. In July, the efforts almost created an international incident after the committee seized flour that the French had purchased and ordered shipped to the French army. Ambassador Girard had to intervene and eventually received an apology and permission to ship the flour to America's allies in the field. A second town meeting was held on July 26th to discuss how to continue the efforts. The chair of the price-fixing committee, General Daniel Roberto, gave a speech trying to tie the price-fixing efforts to the patriotic cause, but also noting that violence would play into the enemy's hands by creating the disorder that the loyalists claimed could only be resolved by British rule. The town meeting doubled down on the policy of restricting the sale of just about any goods to the amount that they cost at the beginning of the year. In a year of hyperinflation, and requiring merchants to accept the increasingly worthless paper money, these actions made shortages even worse. The committee called for new elections to the Price-Fixing Committee and also read the names of merchants who were suspected of continuing to sell goods at higher prices. The elections, held a week later, would elect an even more radical ticket by a margin of more than 80%. Three prominent opponents of the price-fixing policies, General John Cadwallader, along with Robert Morris and James Wilson, who had both served in the Continental Congress, attempted to address the meeting on behalf of merchants, but they were shouted down before they could say anything. The Republican society attempted to make more public the concerns of the merchants. They compared price-fixing to a tax, since it deprived merchants of their property without being justly compensated. In September, a group of 80 merchants and traders signed a protest against price-fixing pointing out that it was making the scarcity problems even worse. They called for a return to free markets and free trade in order to bring back goods to the city which were needed. The merchants, however, simply did not have the political power to do anything. The public was clearly and overwhelmingly in support of the price-fixing policies and continued to blame the shortages on the greed of the recalcitrant merchants. Over the course of the summer, prices continued to soar and shortages got even worse. No one would import anything into the city that they knew they would have to sell at a loss. The suffering poor continued to direct their wrath at the wealthy merchants who they associated with Tories. These were enemies of the people, enriching themselves on the suffering of others. On August twenty-ninth, a new broadside appeared in the streets of Philadelphia. Quote, Gentlemen and fellow citizens, the time has now arrived to prove whether the suffering friends of our country are to be enslaved, ruined, and starved by a few overbearing merchants, a swarm of monopolizers and speculators, an infernal gang of Tories, etc., etc. Now is the time to prove whether we will support our committee or not, whether we shall tamely sit down and see the resolves of the town meeting and committee violated every day before our faces, and the delinquents suffered to go unpunished. The case is just this. Your opponents are rich and powerful, and they think by their consequence overawe you into slavery and starve you in the bargain. But I say it a shame and a disgrace to the virtuous sons of liberty, while the Almighty is fighting our battles without, to suffer those devils of all colors within us, to overturn all that God and man has done to save us. My dear friends, if our committee is overturned, our money is inevitably gone. The British tyrant will then think his golden bribe has not been misapplied. But I call upon you, in the name of our bleeding country, to rouse up as a lion out of his den and make those beasts of prey to humble, and prove by this day's conduct that any person, whatever, though puffed like a toad with a sense of his own consequence, shall dare to violate the least resolve of our committee. It were better for him that a millstone was fastened to his neck, and that he was cast into the depth of the sea, or that he had never been born. Rouse, 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 and come on warmly. Those ending words, come on warmly, were meant as a direct contrast to the ending of the broadside released in May that ended with come on coolly. The earlier ending meant that the issue should be resolved through the legal process and without resorting to violence. The latter ending was suggesting a more violent response to the existing problems. A few weeks later, the Price Control Committee simply gave up. It announced on September 27th that it could not keep the city supplied with goods at fixed prices. Starving militiamen decided it was time to take matters into their own hands once again. They asked Peel, who was a militia officer and head of the Radical Constitutional Society, to lead them, but Peel refused. Militia began organizing on their own, mostly without the cooperation of the officers. They formed a committee of privates, with each company sending a representative to coordinate their actions. There were calls to rid the city of, quote, un-American elements. Some targets were the wives and children of Loyalists who had fled the city to remain with the British in New York. Other targets were Quakers and suspected Tories who had collaborated with the British but had not been convicted of anything. Also targets were merchants who refused to abide by the price controls for goods that the population needed to survive. Militia began arresting merchants that they believed were hoarding goods or charging too much for them and simply once again throwing them in jail. They marched the men through the streets of Philadelphia playing the Rogues March, a tune that was normally used to march a dishonorably discharged soldier out of the army. Things came to a head when the Committee of Privates called for a mass action on Monday, October 4th. It asked Peel and some of the other radical leaders to attend a meeting at Burns Tavern. Peel went to this meeting with the intent of calming the situation and talking the militia out of any rash actions. The militia, however, would not be dissuaded with words. Peel and the other radical political leaders left the meeting in frustration the militia remained at the tavern, drinking and planning next steps. A few hours later, the militia marched into the streets of Philadelphia, looking to arrest those responsible for the suffering of the people. They grabbed John Drinker, a wealthy Quaker merchant who was known for refusing to accept continental paper money and who refused to abide by the price controls. They arrested three other merchants as well. The militia broke into the homes of several other merchants, looking to arrest them, but finding them conveniently gone. By this time, many merchants or others who might incur the wrath of the mob had gone into hiding. That afternoon, the militia, about 200 strong, marched their prisoners through the streets in carts, trying to shame and ridicule the men. James Wilson was one of the men on the list of the radicals. He was a prominent lawyer in town, And Although he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he had also, since then, represented quite a few prominent loyalists in court, helping to acquit them. He was well aware that he was a potential target of the mob, and had sent a request for protection to the Assembly. The Assembly referred the request to the Executive Committee, which did nothing. Wilson then sent his pregnant wife and his children to stay a few blocks away at the home of Robert Morris and he barricaded himself in his home with 17 of his friends, including Robert Morris, and these men were prepared to defend against any attack. Commanding this small company of notables was Continental Major General Thomas Mifflin. Now, several militia officers tried to rout the militia away from Wilson's home, a solid brick building at the corner of 3rd and Walnut Streets. But the men refused to be turned away, threatening the officers with bayonets. The militia began to march past Wilson's house, with the 18 defenders manning muskets at all the windows. Inside the home, Captain Robert Campbell, a Continental officer who was in Philadelphia as an invalid, called on the marchers to move on. One of the militia turned and fired at Campbell, killing him instantly. This set off an intense firefight on both sides. The militia ran for cover, leaving five dead or wounded bodies laying in the street. General Mifflin, inside the House, had once been a popular militia leader himself, but his decision to join the Republican Society made him an enemy of the Radicals. He also called on the militia to disperse. His call was also met with a gunshot, which fortunately for him missed its mark. The group of militia, armed with sledgehammers, knocked down the back door and entered the home, only to be met with musket fire from the stairs. The defenders shot one of the attackers, while the attackers managed to grab and bayonet one of the defenders, David Chambers, a militia colonel and member of Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council. The defenders drove the attackers back out the back door and barricaded the doorway again against another attack. After that, the militia kept up fire but did not attempt another assault on the house, apparently waiting for a field cannon to be brought to the location. Before the artillery could arrive, President Joseph Reed rode up to the house, pistol in hand and accompanied by city troops under the command of Major Lennox. The troops arrested 27 of the militia and the rest scattered. Shortly after the arrival of Reed, General Benedict Arnold also arrived on site. Arnold and the radical president Reed of course were in the midst of a major political fight of their own Arnold noted quote, "your president has raised a mob and now he cannot quell it" when it was over five dead and 14 wounded militia lay in the streets in the house Campbell lay dead and three other defenders wounded a Wilson and the other prominent defenders of what was now called the battle of fort wilson had to leave town or go into hiding for fear of reprisals. Wilson went to Robert Morris's country home. The day after the attack, another group of militia from Germantown threatened to march on the city unless the militia who had been arrested were released. Reed rode up to Germantown to confront the militia, leaving Timothy Matlack, the secretary of the executive council, in charge of the prisoners. Now, Matlack, in turn, faced a local mob and he opted to release the prisoners. Instead of trying to keep the radical militia members as prisoners, the radical leadership in Philadelphia required the Republican defenders of Fort Wilson to post bail and face trial themselves. These actions seemed to diffuse the immediate crisis with the radicals, and after a few months had passed, in March of 1780, the Executive Council issued a general pardon to everyone on both sides who had participated in the action. The class divisions within the city remained on edge, but the leaders managed to defuse a dissent into complete mob rule. Next week, the Continental Congress attempts to establish more foreign alliances and sends more ministers to Europe. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Kurt Avard for support at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. I also want to thank Peter Rogers, Matthew Domer, and SRM Advisors for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I very much appreciate everyone who can make a contribution to help support this podcast so I can keep it free for those who cannot. I've mentioned on the last few weeks that if I can get to 300 Patreon supporters, I plan to quit my day job and devote myself full-time to this podcast. That will mean more content and hopefully better content. So, if that's something that appeals to you, I will hope you will consider going to patreon.com, looking up American Revolution Podcast, and making a pledge. This week, we covered the growing dissension in Philadelphia between radicals and moderates, culminating in the attack on the home of James Wilson. In these events, you really see the growing danger of violence between the people of Philadelphia brought about by the suffering and deprivations of war. We've seen this in many different revolutions or civil wars as they descend into chaos and mass murder, and atrocities can sometimes become the norm. In some ways, it's a surprise that that did not happen in the American Revolutionary War. It may also be surprising to the modern listener that these uprisings did not require the Continental Army to send in divisions and restore order. The civilian leadership of Pennsylvania was able to calm tensions and keep the violence from spreading into something worse. There would be additional riots during the war, but most of these were by soldiers, sailors, or veterans who were being treated poorly by Congress. Attempts to go after the wealthy and powerful citizenry seemed to subside after this point. Many historians argue that some of the middle class people in Philadelphia who may have tended to support the radicals took a look at this event and thought that the chaos and anarchy was not worth it and tended to support the moderates a little bit more after this time. The other big theme from today, of course, was a lesson in economics. When supplies are low and demand is high, prices go up. Many of us take that as obvious today, but keep in mind that Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, had only been published a few years earlier and was still considered cutting edge theory at the time. This was an era of controlled markets where governments regularly set trade rules to the advantage of some over others. You may also need to remember that free markets really only work to a point. The reason that prices go up when demand is high and supply is low is that increasing prices reduce demand. In other words, some go without because they can no longer afford it. And when you're talking about luxury items or a particular type of food that might be replaced with an alternative, that's perfectly fine. But when you're talking about all food, those people who are forced to do without aren't going to just sit back and say, oh, well, the market has spoken. I guess my family will starve to death. They're going to do whatever they need to do to keep their family alive. If that means resorting to violence, then violence it is. Price controls were an effort to prevent that violence and keep everyone operating under the rule of law. Another important thing to remember about the 18th century and how it differs from modern times is that there was no police force in Philadelphia at this time. Cities required the militia to keep order. When the militia was causing the disorder, there was no authority to control them. In theory, political leaders saw this as a good thing. The militia made up the whole body of the people. If the people were overwhelmingly upset about a matter, then there was something terribly wrong that perhaps needed fixing through an uprising. Using a professional police force to suppress the people into accepting an unpopular policy would be considered tyranny. That's why, even after the hostilities settled down, There were no efforts to punish the actors through criminal prosecutions. Violence like this was seen as the proverbial blood that sometimes had to flow to water the Tree of Liberty, as Thomas Jefferson would later say in a different context. If you want to learn more about how militia fit into the 18th century political and power structure, you will want to read this week's book recommendation. It's called Arms, Country, and Class. The Philadelphia Militia and the Lower Sort During the American Revolution by Stephen Rossworm. This book looks at local events in Philadelphia during the Revolution and the tensions leading up to the Battle of Fort Wilson. Uh, This book is on the academic side, focusing more on facts and statistics than an interesting narrative, but I think it covers the issue well. Although this book was first published in 1987, The author, Professor Rosswam, is still a professor of history at Lake Forest College. If you want the book, it is available on Amazon in paper or Kindle edition. There is also a copy available for free browsing on archive.org. So, if you want to read more on today's topic, look for Arms, Country, and Class by Stephen Rosswam. My online recommendation is a closer look at James Wilson. It's called... James Wilson, Nation Builder, by Lucian Hugh Alexander. This is a very short biography, only about 80 pages. It was originally published as a series of articles. Wilson is a largely ignored founder. He was a major legal figure in Pennsylvania during this era, and was one of the few lawyers in America to have received a formal education, in his case in Scotland. He also served in Congress during the Declaration of Independence and also attended the Constitutional Convention. He would go on to serve as one of the first justices on the United States Supreme Court. This biography was published in 1907 and is available on archive.org. My question this week asks, Did some Hessian soldiers switch sides in the American War of Independence? Before I get to the question itself, I want to emphasize that not all German-speaking soldiers who came to America came from Hesse. They were drawn from a number of different German states, but they were all generically referred to as Hessians at the time, so I will continue to do so here. Desertion was surprisingly common on both sides during the Revolutionary War, and Hessians were no exception. Life in the German states where the soldiers came from was pretty miserable for commoners there was far less land, food, and other resources per capita than they found in America. Many Hessian journals from the time convey their astonishment at how wonderful life is in the colonies and how much better civilian life was generally in America than it was back in their home country. Some soldiers also found girlfriends in America, particularly among the German-speaking population of Pennsylvania during the occupation of Philadelphia. As a result of many of these issues, many soldiers decided they wanted to stay. And many people forget that there was a very large German-speaking population in the Middle Colonies during this time. The Americans used people from these communities to connect with the Hessians and encourage them to switch sides. The Americans did make a concerted effort to get Hessians to defect, as they also did with British regulars. Sometimes they used political persuasion Other times, they used outright bribery. In one pamphlet, Congress offered enemy soldiers land, two pigs, and a cow if they defected. A great number of Hessians also became prisoners of war, and many of them opted to remain in America rather than be returned to the army and go back home after the war. They were often held prisoner, which I kind of put in quotes, on inland farms in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. These prisoners of war were not locked up. They were often distributed out to people's homes and farms in the local villages where they were on a limited version of parole, where they weren't allowed to stray too far from the home where they were staying. These men were used as farm labor because so many of the young men were away fighting the war, and they often lived with the local families and became part of the community. In the end, I've seen some estimates as high as about one-third of the Hessians who came to America ended up remaining in America as citizens after the war. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. There are links to all of them on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American... Revolution podcast.